Hello and welcome to another episode of Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. The old, the old team back together after one whole episode apart. Um, and we're joined today for, I'd say this is a special episode because we've got not one but two guests uh, on the podcast today. They are the Nobel Prize winning economist Richard Thaler and the portfolio manager David Potter. Yeah, very, very glad to be back. Didn't feel cheated on uh, last episode with with Chris. I I think I'll get over it. But yeah, this was a great opportunity to talk to one of the foremost minds in in behavioural investing, uh, along with David Potter, a portfolio manager who tries to capture opportunities that come from behavioural biases and and overreaction to market events. We should briefly just explain that relationship. So uh, Richard Thaler, along with being an academic and an author, also has... Uh, a boutique asset management company called Fuller and Thaler, and David Potter is one of the managers there. He also studied under Richard Thaler, uh, and he now runs some funds which broadly can be characterised as trying to take advantage of investor misbehaviour, essentially. But it was great having them both on, right, Frank? Oh, it was yeah, honestly, it was it, it, it was great. It was great hearing, you know, how they fight their own biases and you know how they counter just the natural way that we're hardwired to do the wrong thing. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm talking about myself here, but, you know, I think uh, I think, yeah, it was, it was definitely interesting. You know, naturally, the, the portfolio that, that David Potter runs did phenomenally well because there was so much that was heavily oversold uh, during the coronavirus pandemic last year and um, in the sell off that, that they, they they prospered from that. Say it, it did, we touched on this and we touched on various sort of uh, behaviours and misbehaviours that came about during the COVID crisis. But yeah, I think as one of them said in this, uh, you know, obviously a terrible event for humanity, but, but you know, fascinating from a sort of market perspective because of some of the, some of the things that we saw there, some of, some of the extreme behaviours that, that went on. Yeah, it's, it's obviously been a very interesting time, particularly for behavioural economists. It's like there's seemingly very little rationality in certain parts of the investment world at the moment. And to get guests like this on to, do, to sort of help us through the weeds of that was great. Yeah, I thought so too, although I have one regret on this point. So prior to this interview, I, I got the uh, Richard's book, Nudge. In fact, they sent, they sent it to me in a, in a not very subtle nudge at all. Um, and new edition out as well, I think, again, not subtle, but they're letting us know that. Um, and, I, and I read it and I had this killer question all lined up, almost a sort of undergrad thesis of a question, trying to combine about 10 different chapters and different behavioural things that I was going to throw to him and get him to kind of explain the whole... Uh, coronavirus crash and meme stock trend and at that moment uh, I had a a little technical difficulty so uh, Frank took on the question and I've listened back to it I'm not gonna say butchered it but you know I I missed my opportunity and uh, but but actually probably for the best because he kind of dismissed the whole thing pretty quickly uh, as you'll hear on this and um, so that was that was my sort of uh, regret from this podcast but look, enough, enough from us. Without further ado, here is our interview with Richard Thaler and David Potter. Rather than pick my biggest mistake, I'll pick my most recent big mistake. I'm going back to uh, April, May of 2020. Uh, the market has crashed. And uh, I happen to be sitting on... Uh, more cash than usual. I had sold uh, a home and wasn't sure what to do with it. And I kept waiting for Dave to tell me, okay, now the market's going up. 
That was my second mistake, is listening to Dave. But um, uh, so anyway, the market started going up uh, before I thought it had any business doing so. And I ended up leaving the cash around uh, longer than I should have. And th this is something I've actually written about, so, so I should know better. And um, it's the, meanwhile, I'm making contributions every month into my retirement plan. And I'm not thinking about that one bit. It, you know, are those, I have picked an asset allocation. I stick with it. Every month money goes in. So in my university account, some of it goes in in a lump uh, at the end of the year. I never think about that either. But this particular money is new money. The, the money I've already invested or the money that's going in every month, I th they're all in different mental accounts. And it was hard to pull the trigger on this pot of cash, although there was much more money lying around in various accounts that I wasn't worried about a bit. So uh, I always warn people about this, but it's much easier to give other people advice than to follow it yourself. So the mistake was, was this, sort of this mental accounting, this idea of sort of uh, false silos of, of, of money and not, uh, not treating it all the same, or obviously the mistake was just what being in cash when the, when the market was doing something, or? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the market roughly doubled in the, <laughs> over this period. So that, that, uh, that pot of money could have been twice as big uh, if only Dave had given me the the phone call telling me, okay, today's the day. Jeez, Dave. Uh, you're allowed to defend we, yourself. No, we, actually, we had, a, we had a very good phone call April 6th <laughs> when I was pounding the table. So yeah, I, no, I'm, no. I'm just, uh, but during that phone call, you said, I'll let you know. <laughs> you were bullish. I grant you that. But you said, uh, you're going to call me. And you know, I, I think we should uh, forget the mental accounting. Just take that pot of gold and give it to me. And that way you don't have to worry about your mental accounting. I will take care of your money. Yeah, uh, and I, I know where it will be. <laughs> well, th this is neat, Dave. So, I mean, other than your biggest mistake being letting down your, your friend, mentor and, and boss and, and meaning he's got half as much money as he could have had today. Um, what's your... What, what, what's your uh, Biggest, biggest mistake and what have you learned? So we actually, I, I run two different uh, funds. Uh, you know, one, one is called the Fuller and Thaler Behavioral Mid-Cap Value Fund. Uh, that only has about a four-year track record, so there hasn't really been enough time for me to really screw it up yet. But um, we also run a uh, small-cap value fund uh, through J.P. Morgan called the Undiscovered Managers Behavioral Value Fund, and that's been around since 1998. So I've certainly had a lot more time to mess up there. So I'll give you an example of one. And, uh, you know, really the, uh, the catch here is this investment lost about 75 to 80% in one day, which, um, you know, is quite horrifying as, it's a as lot, an yeah. investor and certainly as a client. Um, it certainly wasn't a fun day. That day was uh, April, or actually August 1st of, of 2012. And the company that uh, we're talking about was called Knight Capital Group. And I'll just go through a little bit of the background. I won't spend too much time on it, but it, it is pretty interesting. And I think the lessons learned are also pretty vast. 
but uh, they were essentially the, the largest wholesale market maker in the United States. But anyway, at the time, you know, they, it was a wonderful business, very steady, stable sort of return on equity business, 12%. They traded around book value, just sort of in and out. Um, not a lot of volatility, just a, a very easy way to accumulate capital over a given period of time. However, uh, unfortunately, um, the New York Stock Exchange changed the rules a little bit. They had to rush and create some new uh, order management system. They messed up when they actually uh, implemented the software. I won't go into all the details, but they had eight servers. Apparently, they were doing this manually, and uh, one of the engineers forgot to put the new code on the, uh, on the eighth server. And so what happened then the morning of, uh, of August 1st, 2012, is that uh, they sent out all these false um, uh, order requests, and they were effectively buying high and, and selling low, which you know, the last time I checked is not going to be your optimal financial strategy. They ended up uh, being long three and a half billion, short three and a half billion. And this was in, over the course of, you know, an hour or two. Um, and uh, before they could finally figure out what it was and they immediately shut it down. But, you know, because of the May flash crash, you, you might remember that in the U.S. from uh, May of 2010, um, there were some additional constraints put in that would disallow people to be able to simply cancel trades. And so unfortunately for Knight Capital, uh, they lost about 440 million on these trades, give or take. Uh, they couldn't cancel them because they didn't move the market up enough. You have to move it by, I think, 30% or more for, for these to be potentially canceled. So anyway, um, that was uh, well over half their capital, if not more. Uh, they needed to get immediate liquidity injections. Goldman bought the positions. They got, um, they got some, uh, some options bought at $1.50. The day before they had traded at 12, the, that morning they opened at uh, $3.50. So we immediately sold our whole position and it was a big position too. And that's that's what I'm getting to in, ter in terms of the mistake, but uh, it was one of our larger ones. But what had what had you really done wrong there? Because obviously you, you know, they, they had made a mistake there with, 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 with the service and things. You, in terms of picking the stock, hadn't done it, you know, you can't foresee well, that, that, that level that's, of humor. That's very, that's very true. I, I wasn't the engineer manually uh, put it, putting in the uh, the code, but I think what what uh, you have to learn from a le from something like this is that um, there there are two things here. One one I call the illusion of safety, and so I had a very large stake. I think it was greater than two percent of the portfolio in this one name, simply because you know day in day out they were just earning their twelve percent, thirteen percent ROE trading a book value at that point in time that was a wonderfully safe trade very as actually defensive too when markets are volatile this was actually quite defensive um, and so we let our weight in that type of a stock go up without really perhaps focusing on the massive amount of power that such a company has to make a huge operational mess up um, and so the scale of this operational blip if you will um, cost the company its entire whatever 50 year plus history in, in one hour. And so uh, a lot of investors and myself at that time included, you know, seemed to focus more on the business models, the valuation, et cetera, without really looking and saying, okay, but when you do actually get your final weight in the portfolio, is there something you're missing? Are you lulled into this sense of complacency because you do think of this as a very safe business? Uh, without perhaps realizing what can go wrong if uh, if something happens, and so clearly you saw that 
yeah, they lost over half their capital in one day, and that's that's fairly unique for a company. And, and I think a lot of these type of uh, business models share those sort of same operational concerns. And you ended up ex- exiting the position. Yes. Yeah. They. Yeah. They were. You know, either going to go bankrupt or get some completely out of the money type uh, call option injection, which they did from a company called Getco, which uh, valued the stock at a dollar fifty. And so, uh, yeah. No, we we got out, but uh, it was a hard day. Sure. But sure. Good lessons learned. Well, there's there's your mistakes, gentlemen. So let's uh, let's turn to the meaty topic of of other people's mistakes. Uh, particularly at the moment, we've got some pretty uh, frothy markets. Uh, meme stocks et al. Uh, what's what's your take on some of the stuff that you're seeing at the moment that you just think is it's cringeworthy and and, and you should, people shouldn't be doing it? Well, you know, I think both of us. Well, I won't speak for Dave, but I I I, I suspect both of us are mystified by these meme stocks. Um, I, I've called it the bored market hypothesis. And, uh, you know, again, if we go back back to that fateful time in the spring of 2020, uh, when there wasn't anything to do, and uh, there weren't even sports to bet on, and people were stuck at home, staring at their computers, supposed to be working, uh, a lot of people seemed to start dabbling and um, on Robinhood or wh- what, wherever they happen to have an account. And uh, so some companies started going up uh, and sort of based on cheering from the sidelines. And th- th- this, is, uh, this is surprisingly dumb even to a behavioral economist. And uh, so, so boredom is the catalyst here for people's behavioral. Uh, you know, that's the, I mean, it's not a very satisfactory explanation for what's going on but it's the best one I have. And um, it seems to fit the facts, but uh, I think maybe even more surprising than it getting started is it continuing. So having having another leg, yeah. Many people have been tempted to short these stocks at some time or other, and uh, that's been painful. Uh, I, I'm I'm happy that we're a long only company because uh, I could see us having been tempted. Um, I don't think we were ever tempted to go long those stocks, but there would have been a temptation to short them, and that would have been painful. Sure. So how how I mean how are you right now profiting from other people's mistakes? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll just give you, give you some examples. Um, you know, we, we do focus um, on the overreaction side in, in the Fuller and Thaler Behavioral Mid-Cap Value Fund. And really what that means is uh, 2020 was honestly, COVID has been horrible for humanity, but it's been wonderful for prospective returns. And that's simply because of uh, behavioral biases that took place starting in, in March. but you know, lasting all the way really through the end of, uh, of September. 
Um, we noticed early on that banks were getting hit hard, which is uh, clearly what you would expect when uh, there are potential massive credit losses on, on the horizon with something like, like this when you have whole economy shutting down. But, you know, what I noticed was uh, a couple things. One, there were um, historic buys in insider buying uh, really across most of the banking sector in the United States. And that was... And just, sorry, Dave, just for, just for our readers, when you say insider buying, this, this is people in those companies, the so sort of CEOs, CFOs, people who have to disclose um, when they're buying more shares of that company. Is, is that, is that exactly. accurate? Right, yeah. And the rule is within 48 hours of the actual purchase, they need to file a, what's called a Form 4 to the SEC, and then that's immediately disseminated to the marketplace. And so, you know, these were record number of buys. You know, we have uh, data aggregators that just show us all the uh, historical and, you know, far surpass the, uh, the days of the financial crisis in terms of the insider buying. So, you know, that's music to our ears because obviously one part of our process is really seeing what the insiders do and, and sort of avoiding the analyst community, but trying to follow what the actual people that know what they're doing and work at the companies are doing with their, with their own money. So that was one thing that I noticed. But then I also noticed that there were a lot of people that seemed to immediately hark back to the financial crisis and that this was the GFC2 um, in, in the sense that even, you know, in March, I was having a conversation with, with one of our larger clients and someone on the call said, well, I think this time might even be worse. I think we're going to see a major universal bank go under because of credit losses. And you, know, you can sort of sense that emotion and what we call saliency. Um, because certainly the, uh, the losses from the banks uh, were real uh, in the financial crisis, and uh, that was very poorly managed uh, up to that crisis. But, you know, things were so far, so, so different this time around with much higher capital levels for banks as a result of the uh, financial crisis. Um, you know, much uh, more government intervention, both in terms of mon immediate monetary stimulus, but also fiscal stimulus that you really didn't have anywhere to the near same degree in the uh, financial crisis. And so you had this credit curve flattening going on that people, I think, were very slow to appreciate. And, and I think a lot of investors uh, willingly ignored these type of positive data signals and, and just chose to ignore the sector. I had people call me and say, look, I know, I know that uh, you think banks are cheap, but I just can't buy them. I just want to buy things that are sure not to go under, no matter what the, no matter what the outcome of this crisis is. And so in, in saying that, I think what they're doing is they're saying, I don't care about valuation anymore. And that, that to me is the, the cornerstone of, of behavioral finance in a way. It's when people then start to become overly emotional and irrational and, and forget that, you know what, chances are on a probability basis, this is actually the best time to invest. And again, we, we, we uh, use a lot of the information from the aforementioned insider buyers to give us some confidence that the timing is, is right. So I was interested to know, David and, and, and Richard, sort of, you know, this is your edge, uh, is, you know, understanding investors' behavior and, and effectively t taking advantage of, 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 of bad behavior here. But I suppose, um, nowadays, that data is, I would guess, more easily available than, than it ever has been. You know, the, for example, let, let, let's take that example of that, you know, the, the insider buying. I'm sure, you know, a lot of people could get that. And, you know, the work of your 
um, you know, Richard's work is more 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 widely available and read perhaps than it ever has been. He's he's been in a film for crying out loud, you know, a, a hit Hollywood movie. And and Daniel Kahneman, who's obviously you know, um, he's on the board of your firm. You know, he's, I feel you know, increase, increasingly prevalent. I suppose. Do you ever worry that, that this edge uh, could be a, for want of a better word, sort of eroded as other people uh, become more au fait with uh, behavioral economics, behavioral sciences, and also with some of the data that, that that's now out there? Or do you think that that's fine? <laughs> so let me take the first stab at that. Uh, there are kind of two levels of that question. Uh, one is a very general one that uh, that I get outside of investing, which is, but much, very much the same flavor that, you know, okay, people are reading your books and they're reading Danny's book and uh, aren't these biases gonna go away because people are going to learn? And the answer to that is clearly no. Um, you know, um, we, people, are not, people are not getting smarter and the, the number of people who are uh, reading our books um, are way more than we ever expected, but a, a tiny a tiny proportion of the world. Yes, yeah, so, humans can't become econs. Right? Uh, humans are not going to become econs in, uh, well, certainly not in my lifetime and um, not in my uh, grandchildren's lifetime. Um, uh, but... Uh, it's a different question to ask if there's some market anomaly uh, that's been written about for a long time, such as insider buying, um, w will a strategy that's based on that stop working? And uh, that's entirely possible. So yes, we're going to worry about whether some signal is going to continue to work. And, uh, and so we're going to try to implement things in, in as sophisticated a way as we can, but we're going to also monitor. And like Dave said, he's been running this strategy uh, for quite a while and uh, it doesn't outperform every year, um, and although I wish you'd stop having occasional bad years, Dave. That would be even better. Yeah, probably uh, do something about that, Dave. Yeah, it's like a public try, try to, 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 try to that. fix that. Uh, but but, but uh, when we go around and talk to institutional investors, we find they still say, they still look at us like we're weird. <laughs> and that's very reassuring. I, w I wanted to switch focus for a second, if that was okay. Because I wanted to, you very kindly sent me uh, the, the final edition of, of, of Nudge, um, which I've been reading over the last week here. But I, I have to confess, I've been reading it in tandem with another sort of book, broadly in the behavioral uh, science sort of world called uh, Oh crap, potty training. Um, and this is uh, to help my now two-year-old son uh, to do potty training. Now, I'll be honest with you. Um, they're both very, you know, they're both both very good books. One of them's won a Nobel, you know, one of them's written by a Nobel Prize winner. The other one, the other one isn't. Um, and 
Oh crap, poly trading, it, it, it's not as much um, sort of libertarian paternalism as just straight up paternal, you know, this, I thought, I thought it would be helpful to read them in tandem. I thought I could become a, a choice architect for my son and help him make better decisions. But actually, I've obviously just forced him to use a, to use a pot. So, um, but they both be great reads. And I want to ask you one thing, uh, Richard, if that was all right, uh, with regards to Nudge. So Frank and I are both, both Brits. And before I was out here in the US writing about investments, I spent a lot of time uh, writing about um, investments and savings in the UK. And auto-enrollment came in in 2012. There's a big government pension uh, measure that made sure. Uh, well, I feel like it's a. It was a big. It was a big. It's a big nudge, right? It was a big old. You had to opt out of uh, your company's defined contribution schemes rather than opt in and things. And I just wondered, you know, do you pay attention to stuff like that? I mean, I, I thought of that as a, a direct sort of thing from from what yeah, you've written no, about. Uh, kind of uh, absolutely. So, uh, well, first of all, um, before we drop the potty training. Uh, you know, perhaps the f most famous nudge is the fly and yeah. uh, the fly in the urinal in the Amsterdam airport. And um, it's been a while since I've been in this business, but uh, I hear that a Cheerio thrown into the toilet um, can do wonders. I, I don't know whether your kid is a boy or a girl, but uh, if, if for boys, I hear Cheerios are... Oh, really? As a sort of... As a, as a, a target. target. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. That, the, that is good. I, I, and do you know what? That's not in, that's not in no crap potty training. So you know, I will, I will, okay. I will so, the author. so there you go. Uh, Thank you. But, uh, you know, back to investing. Um, Look, when uh, Lord Adair Turner, who ran the commission that created that, that system, and for non-Brits, this is essentially a nationally run uh, version of a 401k plan for firms that weren't offering such a plan. And by the way, the U.S. should copy this because something like 40% of workers don't have a retirement plan where they work, and, and that's bad. Uh, but uh, Adair had a decision to make, which was, should that be required, or should it just be nudged? And the, the, the decision they made was to require firms to offer it, but only to nudge workers to join. So firms were required to offer it and to make enrollment automatic, but people could opt out. And that achieved about 90% enrollment, which is a remarkable success. Now, some people have said, no, no, they should have required it. And in fact, that's the way it's done in Australia. And you can have yeah, an argument super, about superannuation. Superannuation, right? You can have an argument about which system is better. Personally, I find ninety percent enrollment plus freedom of choice is a pretty wonderful outcome. And uh, so, uh, and they've also adopted what what we call save more tomorrow. Uh, so the initial saving rates were quite low. 
but they've been ratcheting them up sort of auto escalation auto escalation kind of, yeah. and the uh enrollments uh, have stayed at over 90 percent so this is uh probably the biggest victory of behavioral economics is the the use of those two ideas automatic enrollment and automatic escalation both in the private sector in the US and in the public sector around the world. And of course, the fly in the urinal. So well, yeah, those, those are the three, the three big the, ones. The, those are the three big ones, right? And hey, we won't rank when, them. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah that, we're above that. And when my son finally learns to pee, I will, you know, uh, that, that'll be number four. Um, actually, that's not fair. He's learned to pee. That's not the problem. Yes, the problem is, yes. the, the, problem is the where. It's um, the targeting, right. Well, that was our interview with Richard Thaler and David Potter. And Franco, look, I mean, obviously two people, so so, so double the views as usual, but, but, but also just a lot to take from it generally. What were, what were your main takeaways, I suppose? Uh, main, main takeaways, I think the mistake of not being fully invested. We hear this quite a lot. And you know, this, you one know this is a sore subject the... for me. You know this is a difficult no, subject. No, no, no. I know I, I, I'm not trying to itch at that wound, but... You know, this one haunts me at the moment. I have a little bit of cash sitting around and I haven't moved it for six months. And it's been a pretty good six months to be out of the market or rather the wrong way around. It's stupid because I know the basic truths of investment. You know, don't try and time the market, the effectiveness of pound cost averaging, the power of compounding. And yet I've just got money sitting there in cash. And it makes me feel so much better that someone uh, of Richard's intellect has also made the same mistake. Yeah, it's interesting that sort of, I, I'm definitely guilty of that. What I think is sort of mental accounting where you have different pots of money for different things. Um, in the book Nudge, just to just to prove uh, that I read it, he recounts this story of Dustin Hoffman having literally big pots of cash in his in his apartment. Like some was labelled like food, some was labelled, uh, I don't know, for sort of business expenses. And he had to borrow some money. Anyway, it's a long story, but Hoffman does it, Thaler does it. I think we're all guilty of it, thinking, well, this is my... This is my bank account. This is my pension. This is that, and not treating them all accordingly. Uh, yeah, on the on the on the wider behavioural stuff that that was that was spoken about. David describes this moment where at inflection points, you know, like the one we experienced in twenty twenty, where the point at which people don't care about valuations and just want something that's not going to go under. You know, that's that's how he said it. They've become overly emotional and irrational. You know, he describes this point as the best time to invest, and it, and it really is. A, a, a nicer way of that saying that adage, or the classic adage of when fear is at its peak, you should buy. Uh, but that seems to be the way in which they run their entire portfolio. And, and very successfully last year, naturally, given how oversold areas were. Yeah, I think though, it, we sort of joked about this before. It, it's definitely that kind of, it's, it's slightly easier said than done, isn't it? You know, <laughs> when everyone else is panicking, you've got to, you've got to stay cool. Like, yeah, great in theory, very hard in practice. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you focus on such a basic thing as, as looking at directors' dealings uh, in, in, in order to ascertain if something is being unduly sold off. You know, looking at history, have these directors been picking up shares at these these kinds of moments throughout throughout time? And yes, they have. And so, you know, they, they, they bought into it. You know, it was interesting that both Richard and David didn't seem overly concerned that their competitive advantage is somehow going to get eroded because more people are aware of behavioural investing. Yeah, I mean, in part because of because of people like him, you know, it's a lot more popular, you know, books like Nudge, obviously, kind of, you know, mainstream. 
Uh, absolutely, but he, you know, he he doesn't he doesn't think that's going to happen, and that comes down to the fact that you know you can always count on investors' biases. You can always count on them to do the wrong things. Uh, it's so hardwired. You know, even they fight against them, as I said. So, despite the popularity, they're, they're still treated like uh, something of a curiosity when they go into meetings with big institutional investors. That was quite surprising. Lots else in there, but we can't cover it all now. But uh, we hope you enjoyed the interview uh, as much as we did. And it is goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.